0: Remember when you learned how to write essays for school? They taught you to state your hypothesis at the top, report on how you went about testing your hypothesis, and end with whether or not you proved or disproved your hypothesis. If you were anything like me, stranger, you probably changed your hypothesis after the fact if your research proved it wrong. This is why I write creative nonfiction and not scientific essays, you see. But a true scientist knows that however deeply they believe their hypothesis to be true, if they do their research thoroughly and carefully, they may find out they were wrong. And rather than change their hypothesis, of course, a true scientist knows that if they were wrong, there's probably a lot more research to be done. Welcome to Strange and Unexplained with me, Daisy Egan. I'm a person who has disparaged ghosts as not existing so many times that probably when I die, they'll make me sit in the corner with a dunce cap on for all of eternity. Just a quick aside before we begin. This was supposed to be a shorter bonus episode, but as you'll hear, there is a lot to cover. So it became a regular episode. So come on, old chap, let's you and I travel over to jolly old England for some tea and crumpets and to meet Harry C. Price, the psychical researcher, shall we? Despite being born in London in 1881, Harry C. Price liked to tell people he was a Shropshire lad. This would be like claiming you were born in Newark, New Jersey when you were actually born in New York City. Like, why would you do that? Price went to school at Haberdasher's Ace Hatcham Boys School, which I thought was a hat-making school, but it was just a regular school with a specialization in music. He was a productive teenager, At 15, he founded the Carlton Dramatic Society, an amateur theater group in Wimbledon, and wrote plays, including a drama called The Skeptic, about a poltergeist. That, he claimed, was based on an experience he had in a haunted mansion in Shropshire. In early 1908, Price began writing for a few local papers. It seemed that what he was writing about were his own experiences in archaeology, which he had taken up as a hobby. He boasted that he had a talent for finding clean antiques. I can't find a definition of what a clean antique is. When I Google it, I just get a bunch of websites explaining how to clean antiques. If I had to guess, I'd say it meant that the antiques he found were in particularly good shape or that they were verified authentic. One of Price's clean antiques was a silver ingot that was stamped sometime in the early 400s in the Roman Empire. But the truth will out, as my buddy Willie Shake said to me once at a party in the Pacific Palisades in the early 2000s. And in 1910, historians at the Society of Antiquaries examined the ingot and were like, nah, bro, this shit is fake. The 1920s saw a rise in interest in ghost stories and paranormal phenomena in the UK and Europe, much like how the spiritualist movement in the States came about after the Civil War, when people had experienced so much death and loss and found comfort in the idea that their loved ones were waiting just on the other side of the ether to communicate with them, if they could just figure out how. In Europe, after World War I, there was a lot of the same kind of sentiment with a movement away from traditional churches and religion and a growing belief in mysticism. Price, who was very much a part of this movement, joined the magic circle, which was basically just a club for magicians, where he became skilled at sleight of hand and general stage magic. And so, it seems, Price found himself at a crossroads. He had a propensity to make false claims and even falsified evidence of such claims with varying degrees of success. He could either continue down that road, or he could take everything he'd learned about trickery and so-called magic and use it to expose fraud. You know, if you can't join him, beat them. So in 1920, Price joined the Society for Psychical Research and set about not just to expose people fraudulently claiming to be able to reach over to the other side, but to see if he could find anyone who actually could. Price's first big case came in 1922, investigating English photographer William Hope, who claimed to be able to capture ghosts in his photographs. Price gave Hope film plates that were marked and found that when the final photos were revealed, Hope had not used the plates Price gave him, but had in fact swapped them out for plates that already had one image exposed on them. That way, when he took the second photo, the figure from the first photo would appear faded and ghostly, while the person posing for the second photo would appear as normal, making it look like there was a ghost beside them. Hope's defenders tried to claim that Price wasn't a reliable investigator because he himself used trickery to try to expose Hope. And like, okay, but then how else was he supposed to conduct his investigation? From there, Price and his colleague, Eric Dingwall, traveled to Munich and helped expose medium Willie Schneider as a fraud, and then a few years later exposed his brother, Rudy Schneider. Price was nothing if not incredibly thorough in his investigations, observing Rudy more than 50 times. Price, while impressed with Rudy's tricks, was able to explain the mechanics of all of them. He was like, cool trick. Here's how it works." By 1925, Price had parted ways with the Society for Psychical Research, a.k.a. SPR, because, it seems, they were most inclined to be drawn in by people whom Price considered to be scammers. So Price took his ball and went home and formed his own psychical research organization, the National Library of Psychical Research. Meanwhile, the SPR was, according to Price, going around ooing and aahing over a woman named Helen Duncan, who claimed she could produce ectoplasm from her body as proof, I guess, that spirits were visiting her? Price struggled to get Duncan to let him even watch one of her demonstrations. But when he made an offer of payment of 50 pounds, Duncan finally agreed. When Duncan arrived, Price and his colleagues examined her clothes very thoroughly to make sure she wasn't smuggling anything in. Satisfied that she wasn't packing tricks, they went into what Price called the seance room, which is where he brought all so-called mediums for testing and observation. There, he could be assured nothing was rigged in the floors or walls or whatever other tricks people use to make it seem like ghosts are about. Duncan went behind a curtain and emerged covered in yards of white gauze, some of which was up her nose and some that was in her mouth. Price later described the gauze this way.
1: It was about thirty inches wide and rather damp, It felt exactly like my summer-weight undervest. I stretched it, and the tactile impression was exactly as if I held a piece of cheesecloth. I smelt it, and even the odor was reminiscent of a bit of ripe gorgonzola."
0: Mmm, that sounds like one delicious spirit. Price would later write,
1: "...I must say that I was deeply impressed. I was impressed with the brazen effrontery that prompted the Duncans to come to my laboratory in an attempt to put over their stuff on our experts. I was impressed with the amazing credulity of the spiritualists who had sat with the Duncans for six solid months, and with the fact that they had advertised her phenomena as genuine.
0: What Price couldn't figure out was where Duncan was hiding this stuff. He asked to x ray Duncan, to which she agreed, but when it came time for the x ray, she jumped up and punched one of Price's colleagues in the face and ran out into the street screaming at the top of her lungs and could only be calmed by her husband. Needless to say, Price was not yet convinced she was legit. In another session, Duncan agreed to let Price's researchers cut a piece of ectoplasm from her while she screamed in pain. It turned out to be quite the act, as Mrs. Duncan's spirits were revealed to be made out of chewed-up paper dipped in egg white. And as for the yards of stuff that Price thought looked and smelled an awful lot like cheesecloth? Later, the Duncan's maid would come forward and admit that she was asked to buy a length of butter muslin and...
1: That after a seance, Mrs Duncan used to get me to wash out a length of this muslin. The muslin had a rotten smell. It put me in mind of the smell of urine. She would give it to me just as she had used it and then it would be much stained and slimy.
0: You know it smells a lot like urine? Stomach bile. This woman was swallowing the equivalent of cheesecloth and then regurgitating it on command. Yards and yards of it, okay? Okay. Inexplicably, Duncan agreed to another examination with Price and his team, but she and her husband hightailed it to Scotland before it could happen. Price claimed that the spiritualists in Scotland welcomed Duncan with open arms and didn't seem at all aware that she was a complete fraud. Duncan offered photo evidence of the ghosts that she claimed to communicate with during her seances, and they are, well, you know that one neighbor who's really into Halloween but also DIY and also not great at DIY, otherwise known as me? It's like she went to a costume shop and bought masks of the characters used in those old Punch and Judy puppet shows and put them on drapey clothes on wire hangers. How she thought anyone was going to look at that nonsense and be like, why this woman is the genuine article is beyond me. This woman was one bird short of a cuckoo clock is what she was. In another very long and detailed piece he wrote in 1927, Price recounts receiving a wooden box sealed with metal bands and a letter stating, in part, The box I am now sending you was entrusted to Rebecca Pengarth by Joanna Southcott, on her deathbed, with a dying injunction that it was to be opened only in the time of dire national need and in the presence of a number of bishops." The contents of the box would reveal to an astonished nation means of saving the country and would benefit the common weal. Rebecca Pengarth had, I am told, to swear the most awful oaths that under no circumstances would she allow the box to be opened except under the sworn conditions. Those conditions included that the box had to be opened in the presence of 24 bishops who had spent seven days studying the writings of Joanna Southcott, the owner of the box. Easy, right? Southcott was an Englishwoman who worked as a servant in the 1700s. In a book she published in 1801 called Strange Effects of Faith, Joanna claimed to have been visited by a spirit of prophecy who told her her mission was to reveal the true meaning of the Bible, which had been closed up till her time, when God saw fit to reveal it through a woman, end quote. Over time, Joanna came to believe that she was Jesus Christ, but then real Jesus visited her and was like, nah, girl, I want you to be my wife. And then, despite being a virgin herself, though she had a female companion for many years, and also being 65 years old, Joanna found herself pregnant with what she believed was the second coming. By then, she'd gathered quite a following. 144,000 people who called themselves South Cotians and were ecstatic at the news that Christ was about to be reborn— When the due date came and went with no baby Jesus, Joanna claimed that it didn't happen at the specified time because of the doubters. Listen, if haters gonna hate, baby Jesus gonna wait. Joanna died two months later, having never delivered the Messiah, and an autopsy of her body revealed that she had died from dropsy, which was not only the name of the eighth dwarf that was cut from the original version of Snow White, but a condition that today we would call Swelling due to organ failure. Anyway, Price received this box and this letter and had a handful of psychical-type people use their various powers to divine what was in the box. Needless to say, there was no definitive
1: answer, but to sum up, Price wrote, I have now recorded most of what the psychometrists told us about their impressions concerning the contents of Joanna Southcott's box. Nearly every medium gave either manuscripts, writings, drawings, or books. Four mediums gave another box, or a smaller box. Two sensed beads and two said seals.
0: Price then x-rayed the box and saw an old horse pistol, a dice box, a small purse with coins in it, a bone puzzle with rings I have no idea what that is, books, a framed painting or miniature, a pair of gold inlaid earrings, though how they could have known the earrings were gold through an x-ray, I don't know, and an old-timey cameo or worked pebble. Price then wrote to a whole bunch of bishops inviting them to come witness the opening of the box as per Joanna's instructions. Most of the bishops were basically like, yeah, no, just open the stupid box and get it over with. In the end, only one bishop attended the much-anticipated opening of Joanna's box, which I'm pretty sure is the name of a porno I saw recently. There were 56 items in the box, including some romance novels, a doily cap, a lottery ticket from 1796, the horse pistol, which was rusted over, the gold earrings, and some other miscellany. The purse had a bunch of coins in it, some of which were rare and valuable, but hardly, I would imagine, enough to save England from some unnamed doom. Nonetheless, there were still people who remained faithful South Cadians, even 100 years after Joanna's death. They claimed that whatever it was that she put in a box that would save the country must just be in another box. Sure. After all that, Price's final conclusion of the whole affair was that Joanna Southcott was simply a genius at getting publicity, even in death. Strangers, Embrace Pet Insurance is back to tell you they've got your pets back when their back gets injured. With the cost of healthcare rising, including veterinary costs, getting your pets covered with Embrace Pet Insurance isn't a luxury. It's common sense. In fact, one year of pet insurance can cost less than one emergency visit to the vet. Listen, I love my dogs, but they can be a disaster. And cats can be a catastrophe. That's literally where the word comes from. Don't look that up. They get themselves into all kinds of nonsense, thinking they can jump from the top of the fridge to the couch, which is clear across the house, or thinking that the chocolate cake you left on the counter looks like a delicious snack. Oh, you can hear my dogs now. There they are. When my puppy, Noodle, got into my medication, I found out it was going to cost me over $100 just to talk to someone on the phone at the Animal Poison Control. With Embrace Pet Insurance... When disaster strikes, <laughs> I can call the hotline and figure out what steps to take to keep my precious fur babies healthy. Plus, unlike human insurance, Noodle has a lot of opinions about this. With Embrace, I can take my dogs to any vet or emergency animal clinic. I don't have to figure out who's in network, they all are. There's a multi pet discount, which I clearly use, and a wellness rewards program that prioritizes preventative care. <laughs> Don't wait for the unexpected to happen. Join the massive community of pet owners who trust Embrace Pet Insurance to protect their pet. Head to EmbracePetInsurance.com strange and sign up for pet insurance today. Make sure you go to EmbracePetInsurance.com strange or else they won't know I sent you. That's EmbracePetInsurance.com strange. Price's investigations didn't always end in a spectacular exposure of fraud. There were some cases that Price couldn't use science to explain away. In 1935, Price investigated the phenomenon of firewalking, observing a handful of Indian firewalkers, and ended up concluding that, as far as he could tell, there was no trickery involved in the practice of walking over hot coals, but that rather it seemed the people who engaged in this practice achieved some kind of state of hypnosis or a trance-like state before walking on the coals. Whereas I tried to take a one-centimeter splinter out of my son's foot the other day and he screamed so loud, the neighbor texted asking if everything was okay. Anyway, it was the meditation, Price believed, that explained how the fire walkers seemed impervious to the pain. But what he couldn't explain was how their feet seemed completely undamaged by the coals. He even made sure the firewalkers weren't applying some kind of salve or ointment to their feet ahead of time, but failed to uncover any scientific or practical explanation for the phenomenon. In 1926, Price traveled to Vienna to meet a 13-year-old Romanian girl named Eleanor Zugen, who was thought to have been possessed by the devil. Price was impressed enough by Eleanor's case that he brought her back to London to conduct more controlled experiments in his own seance room and lab. A year earlier, Eleanor had been sent to live with her grandparents in the village of Buhai. After only a few days, stones, bricks, and a large piece of porcelain came flying through the windows, breaking them, and landed at her feet. This was in the middle of the day, and no one was seen throwing the missiles. Then, things inside the house allegedly started falling off shelves and tables for no reason and landing at her feet. Price wrote that,
1: The simple peasants thought that the girl was bewitched or possessed by the devil and sent her back home.
0: But things were not any better back at home. Shit came flying through the windows there as well, and potatoes flew out from under a bed and rained down on her father. So naturally, her father decided to take her to a priest, but for some reason brought 14 neighbors with him. I imagine this being like the angry villagers from Beauty and the Beast. The local priest was very old and bedridden, but the angry mob brought Eleanor to him and Price described it this way.
1: Soon after Eleanor had entered his room, An iron vessel, which had before been placed on a stand, suddenly burst into many pieces. Immediately afterwards, an earthen vessel, which had been on the hearth, also burst. The splinters were thrown into the court. Scarcely had the people recovered from the shock when both inner windows broke, and one of the splinters fell into the room. The outside windows remained intact, the teacher, looking through the window, alone saw a big chest, which stood against the wall, move backwards and forwards, as well as from side to side of its own volition. Only one young man, Joan Ostefi, had remained in the room. When he saw the chest moving, he stopped it, saying, Wait, devil, I see you cannot do it alone. I will help you. At this very moment, a plank, hidden in a corner, sprang upon the young man and injured him.
0: Then stuff started levitating and etc. You know, basic possession stuff. Eleanor was sent to doctors of all kinds, had a religious mass set over her, and then she was sent to an asylum. There, psychical researcher Fritz Grinwald who surprisingly is not a Harry Potter character, learned about Eleanor through some articles in local papers. He did a super thorough investigation, interviewing hundreds of people and examining every location Eleanor had been taken to where weird shit happened. He begged Eleanor's father to take her out of the asylum. And once she was out, Grinwald brought her to Berlin, where he studied her. After three weeks, he brought her back to her family and then apparently dropped dead in his apartment where he wasn't discovered for two weeks. I don't think that has anything to do with the story, but it was too macabre to leave out. Anyway, after all of this, Price got involved and brought Eleanor to London, but not before witnessing her in action for himself. Eleanor had been put in the care of an aunt in Vienna at the time, so Price met them at their apartment and set about examining every corner, crack, window, panel, piece of furniture, and anything else that could potentially hide rigging. Being satisfied that the room was clean, he sat back and observed Eleanor as she played with a small toy gun that shot out a ping pong ball into an attached basket. Before long, the ball broke in half and Eleanor stood with one half of the ball in one hand and the gun in the other when suddenly a metal letter opener shot from the desk into the wall behind the trio far across the room. After a handful of other objects flew across the room on their own, Price was like, well, I think we should go to London. And he invited Eleanor and her aunt to his lab for study. But before they could even get into the controlled environment of his so called seance room, shit went sideways. The weirdest shit, in my opinion, was when a small group of reporters had gathered in Price's study to meet Eleanor, and while she was playing on the floor, a small painted metal letter that would be used on a letterboard fell from nowhere, struck Eleanor on the head, and landed on the floor. Price set about going through the building to see if it was missing from any notice boards. Not that that would explain how it fell in his office, but still. Eventually, they figured out it came from a whole set of letters in a box that was closed with two fastens in a closed cupboard four stories down from Price's office. Not only that, but the box of letters had only arrived the day before, and only three people even knew they were there, one of whom was out of the building at the time. The other two had been in the room where the box was being kept, but Price seemed satisfied that they hadn't participated in some hoax just for funsies. It's true the letter was magnetized, and some suggested that something about Eleanor drew magnetized objects to her, but the letter had originated a good 48 feet and down four flights of stairs from where it fell. Even if Eleanor were magnetic, why would it have fallen from above? Now, as you know by now, I can be pretty gullible, so maybe there's a simple explanation as to how someone pulled this stunt off. Price, though, was so committed to the veracity of his work that he never considered this a true poltergeist event because it didn't happen in his controlled seance room where he could be absolutely certain no one had pulled any funny stuff. But then there were things that did take place in the seance room that Price couldn't explain. Mostly, these were things falling completely on their own that should not have been able to. For example, a coin falling from a cabinet with no one near it. Of that, he wrote,
1: The falling of the coin off a ledge may be a simple movement, but for this movement to take place automatically, by mechanical means, would require fairly elaborate apparatus, which could not be rendered invisible.
0: And remember, it would have had to have been rigged without him knowing and without him finding it ahead of time in his regular sweeps of the room. So much weird shit happened with Eleanor that Price wrote,
1: I could fill many pages with accounts of the phenomena we witnessed under scientific conditions during Eleanor's stay in London.
0: But it wasn't just things falling from the sky or falling across the room. Eleanor also experienced stigmata, which Price absolutely could not find a mechanical reason
1: for. He wrote, Eleanor had an idée fixe that Dracou, the Romanian devil, used to bite and otherwise maltreat her, an obsession that we tried to eradicate without success. The painful wheels, teeth marks, and scarifyings that she experienced were more than a match for our logic.
0: Needless to say, Eleanor was being monitored very closely, so while it wouldn't have been impossible for her to inflict herself with the marks, it would have been difficult. And while he admitted that the teeth marks that were left on her skin could have come from her own teeth and were always made in a spot that she could access with her mouth, there were a few things he couldn't explain away. One, she would cry out in pain and then her sleeve had to be rolled up. And this is Victorian era England. We're not talking about a polycotton blend that you can just push up your arm. There were likely multiple buttons involved. She wouldn't have been able to roll up her sleeve, bite herself, and roll her sleeve back down in time for the wounds to be as fresh as they were. Two, Price said in at least one instance, Eleanor cried out in pain and immediately ran over and pointed to her chest, and her aunt would have had to undo her entire bodice and then lift her camisole to reveal scratch marks. It's not like Eleanor was rocking razor-sharp talons. And if she was, where were the scratch marks on the outside of her clothes? And don't try to tell me she was hiding pins or something inside her clothes. You don't think Price would have checked for that? Who do you think this guy is, anyhow? He's no amateur. And three, the wounds always healed up extremely quickly while Price and others looked on. They would stand there and watch the wounds, whether they were teeth marks or scratches, as they scarred up and then smoothed over. Furthermore, a few colleagues of Price reported watching the marks appear in real time. So, you know, there's that too. As for Eleanor, Price's conclusion was basically, listen, bros, I don't know what to tell you, but this shit is legit. As much as Harry Price preferred to do his observations in the controlled environment of his own seance room, there were, of course, cases that were impossible to study anywhere other than where they were said to happen. It's easy enough to bring a woman who regurgitates cheesecloth to your lab, but an entire haunted house? Not so much. One such case was that of Rosalie, the spirit of a six-year-old girl who died rather suddenly from diphtheria. Rosalie's mother, called Madame Z by Price, insisted the girl visited her every night. It would be easy enough to dismiss a grieving mother who says the ghost of her dead child visits her in her bedroom at night as the hopeful delusions of a woman desperate to see her beloved little girl again. But when Madame Z told her friend Mrs. X of these nighttime visits... Mrs. X proposed holding a seance at her house, since Madame Z's was apparently too small for a proper seance, because ghosts are claustrophobic, I guess. After a few months of these seances, to which Rosalie would always show up, Mrs. X reached out to Harry Price after hearing one of his talks on the radio. She invited him to her home to witness a seance for himself. Price agreed to come sit with the woman and Mrs. X's family, who also attended these weekly seances. But he had to agree to a list of rules, which were basically, don't be an asshole. Don't speak without permission. Don't touch anything without permission. Just sit there quietly until the hosts tell you you can do anything. Basic rules every man should follow. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Some of my best friends are men. Rice went over the house inside and out with extreme care. He sealed every window and door with tape with his initials on them. In the seance room, he also examined every piece of furniture inside and out, poured cornstarch in a circle on the floor around the chairs, and in the fireplace, he put down a piece of newspaper, covered that with cornstarch, and wrote his initials in the cornstarch. Then the seance began. The lights were turned off. Mr. X turned on the radio for a few minutes for some reason, not exceptionally loud or anything, and they sat in silence for a while until Madam Z started calling out Rosalie. And eventually, Price wrote,
1: Mrs. X leant toward me and whispered, Rosalie is here. Don't speak. At the same moment, I too realized that there was something quite close to me. I neither heard nor saw anything, but the sensation was an olfactory one. I seemed to smell something that was not there previously. It was a strange, not unpleasant smell. Everyone was silent except for the rather distressing emotion of the mother. The next sound I heard was a sort of shuffling of feet on my left the same moment as something slightly touched the back of my left hand, which was resting on my knee. It felt soft and a little warm. I did not attempt to feel what had touched me, but sat very still. After a few minutes, Mrs. X asked the mother whether I could touch the materialization. Permission was given, and I stretched out my left arm and, to my amazement, It came in contact with, apparently, the nude figure of a little girl aged about six years. Okay,
0: so a naked six-year-old girl ghost. Let's just take a deep breath because this is a little icky. Let's just try to remember this is a ghost he's talking about.
1: I estimated her height at about three feet seven inches. I could feel her hair long and soft, falling over her shoulders. There are no words to express how I felt at the appearance of the form before me, or rather to the left of me. A supreme scientific interest with a feeling of absolute credulity would best describe my reactions. I had not bargained for anything so wonderful or so clever as this. But if I had been tricked, so had the mother, and that was unthinkable. She, at least, was not acting a part. I asked whether I could hold Rosalie. I was told that I could move my chair nearer to the child, and this I did. I was now able to use both hands, and again felt every inch of that little form. If it is a spirit, I argued to myself, then... There is no difference between a spirit and a human being. With my right hand, I lifted Rosalie's right arm and felt her pulse. I put my ear to her chest and could distinctly hear her heart beating. I then took both her hands and asked X, his daughter, and Jim to speak in order to prove their presence in their respective seats. They did so. I knew that Madame Z... And Mrs. X were on either side of me, as I had only to put out my hand to touch them.
0: Okay, we got through it, strangers. Well done, us. At that point, Price used some mirrors that had been treated with luminescent paint and claims that he actually saw the spirit of Rosalie. He asked her some questions, but she wouldn't answer. The last question he asked her was if she loved her mother, to which she apparently lit up and said, yes. After it was all said and done, none of the cornstarch on the floor or in the fireplace had been disturbed. None of the seals on the windows and doors had been broken. And Price didn't think the sobs coming from Rosalie's mother could have been faked, considering she was just a regular lady and not, as far as he knew, some accomplished actor. All in all, Price could come up with no scientific or material explanation for what he had witnessed with the spirit of Rosalie. Harry C. Price was a skeptic, maybe even a cynic. He built a life, reputation, and career on calling out phony spiritualists and exposing fake paranormal phenomena. A man like that had nothing to gain by becoming what he most hated, gaming the public for notoriety and profit, things he already possessed abundantly. So were poltergeist-haunted Eleanor and the ghost of six-year-old Rosalie real? Did Harry Price delve so deeply into the world of the paranormal that he actually found authentic examples of communication with the other side? Writer William Goldman has been quoted as saying, Cynics are just thwarted romantics. And maybe that's the case with Price. All of this would be tested in the late 1930s, when Price would go on to investigate Borley Rectory, a place he would eventually call the most haunted house in all of England. But that is a wildly long and wicked tale we must save for its own future episode, Strangers. In the end, Harry Price devoted his life to debunking paranormal phenomena, ghosts, possession, hauntings, and psychics. What would drive a man like that to make his life's work proving these things were fake? Maybe a deep and fervent desire to be proved wrong. Maybe Harry C. Price was always really looking for something more mystical, knowledge that there is something else out there. The other side is real, and that some things will always remain unexplained. Next time on Strange and Unexplained. They say Australia is trying to kill you. Usually it's some kind of wild animal. But for Gilbert Bogle and Margaret Chandler, the culprit was so fast and silent that to this day... No one really knows what killed them. Can't get enough Strange and Unexplained? Join us over on Patreon for three bonus episodes a month for just $5. Or for seven bucks, you get three bonus episodes and all the regular episodes ad-free. Just go to patreon.com slash strangeandunexplained. Strange and Unexplained is a production of The Obsessed Network and is produced by Natalie Grillo and Angela Palladino. This episode was written by me, Daisy Egan, researched by Jess McKillop, edited by Eve Kerrigan, and sound engineered and mixed by Jennifer Swatek. Our voice actors for this episode were Luther Creek and Jordan Kai Burnett. We have a lot of fascinating and bizarre stories to share with you this season, but we want to hear your episode suggestions as well. If you have an idea for an episode we should cover, whether it's a well-known case or something that happened in your town that the world hasn't heard about yet, head over to our website strangeandunexplainedpod.com and fill out the contact form. You can also check out the Strange and Unexplained Facebook group to join in the conversation. If you like our show, please do help us out by giving us a five-star rating and a glowing review wherever you listen to podcasts. If you don't like the show, feel free to give a one-star and a scathing review. The name of the podcast is Fash the Nation. Yikes.